thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Team. Today on The Real Food Real, I am honoured to be joined by Dr. Alessio Fasano, founder of the Centre for Celiac Research and world-renowned expert in the field of intestinal permeability in the development of celiac disease and other autoimmune disorders. Dr. Fasano is also the author of the international book Gluten Freedom and was responsible for discovering that as many as 1 in 133 individuals are affected by celiac disease making the disease 100 times more common than previously thought. Today on the show, Dr. Fasano and I will talk all things celiac disease, um, gluten, and the difference between um, celiac disease, gluten sensitivity, and wheat allergy. Hi, Dr. Fasano, and thanks for your time today. Thank you for having me on the show, Stephanie. Great. I'm excited to chat with you. Just a bit of background for the benefit of our listeners that might not know... um, everything about you. Could you just give us a little bit of a summary as to your career and sort of what you're doing now at the Center for Celiac Research? Sure. Um, I'm a pediatric gastroenterology by training. So for many years I've been studied, you know, acute and uh, chronic diarrheal diseases. And uh, one of my major interests actually has been celiac disease for many, many years. And from there, um, I've been uh, uh, really focused on uh, celiac disease as a paradigm to study how autoimmune diseases in general materialize in people that are genetically predisposed. I'm currently at the Mass General Hospital for Children's Harvard Medical School in Boston, uh, where I direct the Division of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition, and I'm also the uh, director of the Center for Celiac Research here. Um, and finally, I direct a research lab that is called Mucosal Immunology and Biology Research Center. Sounds like you're very busy. <laughs> very much so. So tell us a little bit more about celiac disease. So we know it's an autoimmune disease. Just explain for <coughs> us, um, I guess, the, the pathology of celiac disease and how it is genetic and what it's sort of caused by. Sure. You know, until the recent past, actually, we didn't even know that celiac disease was an autoimmune disease mm. and something that we learned on the go, so to speak. In the past, we thought that was a form of uh, sort of food intolerance or food sensitivities. But, you know, the more we dig into the mechanism that brings to uh, the onset of the disease in people that are genetically predisposed, the more we realize that... Uh, this is a recipe with the same ingredients of many other autoimmune diseases like uh, diabetes, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and so on and so forth. So I believe that now there is a general you know, agreement that this indeed is an autoimmune disease, but very, very peculiar um, because there are some major differences that makes this disease unique compared to other autoimmune diseases. Start to 
with the genetic component, you have to be genetically predisposed to develop any autoimmune disease, including celiac disease, but peculiarly number one, some of these genes that we know are associated to celiac disease, specifically these HLA genes that we call DQ2, DQ8, they are really a signature of the genetic marker of this condition to the point that without those genes, it's almost impossible to develop celiac disease. So there is a high, high penetrance of these genes in people that are affected by celiac disease. Um, this association, these HLA genes without immunity is not unique, but the penetrance, I, the almost totality of people that need to have these genes, it's quite unique to celiac disease. Yeah, so I think that's an interesting point. And would you... Um, the... Uh, Go on. No, I mean, uh, what, what I was going to say, again, uh, there are similar genes in diabetes, for example, in which the penetrance is 75% of MS is 60%. But, you know, again, um, for celiac disease, we're talking about 98% plus. Uh, it should say that these genes are absolutely necessary then to develop celiac disease, but not sufficient since there is almost one-third of the general population that have either or both of these genes and will not develop celiac disease ever. Meaning that, you know, like any autoimmune disease, this is an affair with many, many genes involved. Right now, we've got to almost 100 genes that have been identified to be linked to celiac diseases, each of which really, um, you know, uh, confer a relatively limited importance in terms of genetic, you know, predisposition. But this constellation of the genes seems to be important in order to be at risk for developing celiac disease. The second element um, of this recipe for autoimmunity, i.e. an environmental trigger that is mismanaged by the immune system because it's genetic makeup. So normally the immune system is there to defend us against these enemies. And in people suffering of autoimmunity, uh, this immune system, rather than get rid of the enemy, start to attack your own body. Uh, that element, this environmental trigger, is known. Uh, we don't know for all the other autoimmune diseases what makes people sick with diabetes or MS, but we know that it's undisputable gluten. Uh, there is this strange protein for several grains, including you know wheat, barley, and rye. That is the instigator that turn on the autoimmune process that leads to the typical clinical outcome in celiac disease in people that are genetically predisposed. So again, um, that makes celiac disease unique because it is the only this autoimmune disease for which we have a treatment, not a cure yet, but a treatment, because when you go gluten-free, because the enemy is not there anymore, the immune system shuts down the weaponry and therefore all the collateral damage that we call inflammation that creates the syndicate to develop symptoms will go away and therefore under ideal circumstances uh, people with celiac disease on a strict gluten-free diet will be free of symptoms and the autoimmune process will be completely shut down. Yeah, that's a fantastic summary. So obviously celiac disease needs to have that genetic predisposition and then the environmental trigger is the gluten consumption. So how does that differ to gluten sensitivity and or wheat allergy? So this other form of reaction to gluten is still have a, a, an immune mechanism, but they are very different in terms of what kind of machinery the immune system is involved. For celiac disease, again, we are talking about the machinery that is typical of the autoimmune process. 
for weedology, the machinery has to do with an allergic reaction to a foodstuff. So the same machinery, for example, that's put in motion with people that have peanuts allergy or strawberry allergies, uh, is, is in, in place for people with, with allergy. Um, there are some component of gluten that are slightly different than the one that triggers celiac disease that seems to be involved. The immune system and therefore the machinery involved is different. So we're talking about, you know, cells that we call mast cells that can release some chemicals that we call histamine that in turn are responsible for some of the symptoms when people, they develop food allergies. And then we have a specific immunoglobulins that we call IgE that most of the time are involved when you have an allergic reaction. And again, we know that roughly 1% of the general population, as you mentioned in your introduction, is affected by celiac disease worldwide. And with allergy, it's more rare, it's roughly 0.2-0.3% of the general population. In terms of uh, gluten sensitivity or non-celiac gluten sensitivity, this is the last kid in the block. Um, we didn't know of the existence of a third form of gluten reaction until the recent past, or at least was described in the past in the literature, but we completely forgot about it. Mm -hmm. And now uh, it seems that, you know, you can have another form of immune reaction to gluten that is not allergic, like in allergy, it's not autoimmune, like in celiac disease, yet that will create that kind of, you know, collateral damage, i.e. inflammation that leads to a clinical uh, expression that unfortunately is not distinguishable from uh, the other two forms of gluten reaction. So these three forms of gluten-related disorders cannot be distinguished on the clinical ground. Um, and the other caveat uh, that is a work in progress, by the way, for gluten sensitivity is that contrary to weed allergy and celiac disease, for which we do have some um, biomarkers, I test, to suspect that somebody has celiac disease or with allergy, we don't have this kind of biomarker yet for gluten sensitivity. So we are really at the very early steps to try to, you know, um, grasp the understanding what this is a, a really is in, in terms of clinical presentation and how to make the diagnosis so that we can identify, you know, these people that suffer this, uh, you know, condition related to gluten. As far as we know right now, the diagnosis is just simply based on exclusive criteria. So mm. we define somebody affected by gluten sensitivity, an individual that has symptoms and or sign, they are triggered by the ingestion of grain containing gluten, and these symptoms will go away when these grains will be eliminated from the diet, and in which celiac disease and weed allergy has been, you know, rolled out. So. Again, it's by exclusion criteria, but we hope that soon we will come up with some biomarkers to have a more direct, you know, way to diagnose these people. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of exciting things to come. So how do we go about um, diagnosis or testing? So obviously celiac disease needs that genetic predisposition. What are your thoughts on the biopsies and the protocol with the gluten challenge leading into that sort of testing? So, uh, of course, you know, for celiac disease, um, as for any other gluten-related disorder, it is instrumental that the individual is still on an unrestricted diet to have reliable tests um, that in general are blood tests. So for celiac disease, there are autoantibodies that against a 
an enzyme that we call tissue transglutaminase or TTG that are pretty robust in terms of a screening tool to suspect somebody with celiac disease. So when you test positive of these anti-TTG antibodies, um, you know, the chance that you have celiac disease is pretty strong. Yeah. Um, because, you know, celiac disease is a lifelong condition that implies change in lifestyle for the rest of your life, you know, uh, the intestinal biopsy showing the actual autoimmune insult that characterizes celiac disease is still recommended in the vast majority of cases to really to put the you know a definite seal on the diagnosis and therefore give the rationale for a lifelong gluten-free diet. Yes. Uh, there have been some uh, revision of this protocol in pediatrics uh, in which there has been some proposed uh, approaches in which the intestine biopsy can be avoided under specific circumstances. But these revised criteria now are under scrutiny to establish whether they still are valid or it's too risky to base simply on um, biomarkers and clinical conditions to finalize the diagnosis without a biopsy. Yeah, so I know in Australia the recommendations are at least four pieces of bread per day for two weeks or something like that. So you can imagine if someone's very ill when they consume gluten, that consumption in the lead up to a gluten challenge can be quite problematic. Oh, sure. I, again, uh, in, under the ideal circumstances, uh, you know, we don't want even to do the challenge. Yeah. We hope people, they're not being embraced any diet and therefore seek the advice of a healthcare professional mm. um, during the time in which this biomarker in the bloods uh, are reliable. Of course, if uh, an individual already been embracing a gluten-free diet, this makes, you know, the diagnosis a little bit more challenging and that will impose the needs of a gluten challenge with the amount of gluten and the time that you were mentioned before uh, to make, you know, this test a little bit more reliable. Yeah. Uh, so, again, ideally, we try to avoid the challenge by really getting into the picture as early as possible to make the diagnosis before that somebody is already in a gluten-free diet. Yeah, I agree. And so if somebody has the HLA genes, is your, is your advice to avoid gluten? I know you mentioned that one third of people do not develop celiac disease, but do you think it's an, um, a, a game of Russian roulette to keep consuming gluten if you have that genetic predisposition? Uh, well, if we want to look at the statistics, so again, a general population, the chances to develop C disease is 1%. Mm. If you are positive for these genes, i.e. HLA, DQ2, DQ8, the chance goes up to 3%. So again, there's still the vast majority of the chances, i.e. 97%, that despite these genes, you will not develop the disease. Okay. That in a general population. The discussion can be slightly different in people at risk. So in other words, if you are a an individual with somebody in the family, first degree relative with celiac disease, your chance it goes up to 10%. But if you have some of these HLA genes in double copies, particularly the HLA, as any other genes, you know, these HLA genes can be zero copy if you don't have it, mm. one copy of what we call heterozygous if you have only one of the two parents that pass along these genes, or you can be homozygous, i.e. 
two copies of that specific genes, in this case, DHLA, DQ2, if you have two copies of this gene, now your chances can go up to 35, 30, 35%. There, you know, now I start to see a little bit of a possible rational mm. to not play the Russian roulette and say, you know what, now my chance is not 3% like in the German population, but it's 10 times more, 30, 35%. And I may consider eventually to go gluten-free, even if, you know, I don't have a definite diagnosis. But again, uh, you know, Stefan, you need to keep in mind that this is for life. So people may not go for it and say, you know what, I will deal with that if and when I would develop the problem. Yeah, I understand. So what about if you're homozygous DQ2 and homozygous DQ8? What's the risk there? Uh, well, you can be, um, you know, for what we understand, you know, you cannot be homozygous for both. Oh, okay. And definitely the homozygosity for DQ2 is much more risky than the homozygosity for DQ8. Right. Much more. So that's where it's 35%. Interesting. All right. So what I wanted to move on to next, I know you're in um, Australia, you're speaking in Sydney in April at the Bioceuticals Research Symposium and you've got some new research that you're going to be sharing about the role of gut permeability in autoimmunity. So I'd love for you to share with us the the link between gut health, um, leaky gut and an autoimmune disease such as celiac disease. Okay, uh, without giving up too much of the um, you know, this research stemmed from the observation that uh, um, we thought that the uh, necessary and sufficient ingredients for developing autoimmunity that we just discussed, i.e. genetic predisposition and exposure and an environmental trigger, turned to be not enough. They are necessary. Uh, so you need to have genes to make you at risk to develop these problems. You have to be exposed to an environmental trigger that puts you over the edge. But that is not sufficient. There, is, there are at least another three ingredients that we're totally unaware to develop the problem. One is the one that you just mentioned. Uh, so a loss of battery function so that these two worlds are the genes that dictate how the immune system works that is within your body. And these enemies, there are large molecules in general proteins that live outside of your body, have the chance to physically interact. And under normal circumstances, this interaction is prevented indeed by a gut barrier that is really built to keep this enemy at bay outside our body. But sometimes this system really, it's jeopardized by several reasons that we can discuss more in details. But, you know, the bottom line is that this loss of battery function or leaky gut, whatever you want to call it, it seems to be a pretty uh, common denominator to many of these autoimmune diseases. So definitely there is this third element uh, of the recipe. The fourth element, of course, is an immune system that is not doing its job right. And again, uh, to try to understand why the immune system goes out of control is something that is of great interest nowadays. And uh, the fifth element, that is a relatively new element that came into the picture that will be discussed at the symposium, is the role of this ecosystem of the gut, i.e. what we call the microbiome, in really uh, putting all these you know, moving parts together to create what would be a perfect storm of an individual that, you know, again, is genetically predisposed 
to develop these autoimmune diseases so that this predisposition will move to actuality. Uh, all this to say that because now we start to understand the piece of the puzzle, it appears also clear to us that um, having the genetic predisposition for these diseases is not destiny that you will eventually, you know, develop these conditions. And that's quite a revolutionary concept because, again, in the era of the genome approach of life, we were convinced that if you have the genes sooner or later, you will come down with that kind of problem. Now we know that that's not the case. If you do or do not, it really strongly depend on your lifestyle. And most importantly, the environment in which you live, the way that you live your life, um, conditions that can affect, you know, how, again, your intestine is capable to maintain a strong barrier or the composition of the uh, microbiome. Yeah. And again, we can go to a laundry list to explain why some of these conditions really um, are in uh, a epidemic kind of, uh, you know, slope. Uh, for example, you know, we are in the midst of epidemic of asthma, mm. of uh, food allergies, of uh, autoimmune diseases, Alzheimer, of some cancers. And, you know, this epidemic is materializing in a timeline. It's way too short to blame genetic mutation to be the driving force. Rather, is change in the environment that, you know, is happening too fast for our body to adapt. And um, personally, I believe that one of the most important elements of the environment is changing this, um, you know, five pieces of the puzzle that I was telling you um, um, is the way that we eat. So in other words, nutrition that is changing dramatically in the past couple of generations and probably is one of the key elements that is really dictating these epidemics. Yeah, I agree. And we speak about gut health a lot on the show and I'll link up some old episodes for our listeners to um, recap that. But obviously we know that real food is the foundation of gut health. So that's what we've spoken about um, so much. So um, thank you for you know confirming that for us again. I just wanted you to touch on your discovery of zonulin. We know that's the doorway to leaky gut as it affects the um, spaces between the cells of the intestinal lining. So just quickly, how did you uncover that? And a summary as to the influence on that and gut health. All right. So if I were to really show off, I would say, oh, I thought about it. So and I discovered because I had a strong intuition um, and that would not be the real truth. Um, in general, the way that science advances is that you formulate an hypothesis, you uh, eventually design an experiment to challenge the hypothesis, you execute the experiment, and not out of 10 times, the outcome is very different from what you predicted. <laughs> so the real story behind Zolomon is, is a tremendously and disgraceful failure of something else that I was doing. I, I was trying to develop a vaccine for cholera, uh, there is a deadly bug that you know kills a lot of people still does um because of this powerful toxin that makes people do have this purge and diarrhea and therefore dehydration in a short period of time and sometimes the the timeline is so short that you don't have a chance 
to resupply uh, fluids that these people would die of dehydration. Mm. And, and in trying to develop a vaccine for cholera, I stumbled upon the discovery of a brand new toxin that we were unaware before, that rather than create this outpour of water into the intestinal lumen that characterized the diarrhea induced by cholera, loosened up the space in between cells. Uh, so in other words, made the intestine leaky. Um, and that was something that was never discovered before. And in trying to understand how this toxin works, so in other words, what kind of you know mechanisms led to uh, this uh, um, increased gut permeability, uh, we ended up to discover that there was a machinery that was put in motion by this toxin that was extremely complex. And my reasoning at that time was, I can't believe that you know we as a species maintain this machinery just to be the target, something that actually is harmful. Um, and it's more likely that color has been smart enough to study our physiology and mimicking something that we use to physiologically regulate gut permeability. And that's what we put forward as an hypothesis almost 15 years ago. Mm. And, um, and, you know, in challenging this hypothesis, we uh, end up to discover Zonlin as the molecule that indeed physiologically does this kind of, you know, job. I modulate the spacing between cells for our own goods. Uh, and as typically happens in physiology, when this me mechanism goes out of control and spelled from physiology to pathology, you end up to, and uh, you know, uh, develop, you know, diseases in which loss of better function seems important. So, Zonulin uh, now has been linked by us and many other investigators worldwide to a series of conditions, including, again, autoimmunity, um, conditions that affect the nervous system, and cancer. Yeah, it's an amazing discovery, and it certainly um, does come back to the importance of gut health so that we can um, improve that intestinal permeability and essentially um, prevent, prevent autoimmune disease. So what I wanted you to cover next for us was in your book, Gluten Freedom, you do discuss the... Um, I guess the importance of gluten-free and certainly the management of autoimmune disease for behaviorally related diagnoses such as autism or depression and anxiety. And I think this is really important because a lot of people seem to link their food consumption with digestive symptoms only, where we know that symptoms can be systemic that is anywhere and everywhere. So what what are your um, thoughts on gluten and, I guess, nutrition for these um, behaviorally related diagnoses or um, mental illness? So uh, one of the most fascinating and probably less understood uh, connection is between gluten and the brain. Mm. Um, you know, on the clinical ground, we know as a fact that a lot of people that have problem with gluten, <clears throat> i.e. people with serious disease, gluten sensitivity, with allergy, they manifest, you know, um, behavioral and or neurological uh, and or psychiatric conditions that can be very, very mild from short memory loss to much more, you know, severe and demanding conditions like peripheral neuropathy, ataxia, all the way to schizophrenia, autism, attention deficit disorder, and seizures. 
and, and again, um, there is a, a, a very heated and yet to see, be settled debate why and how that happened. Um, well, you know, again, uh, there are several theories out there to try to explain how health and foods, uh, in this case, specific nutrients from the foodstuff like gluten can be related to, uh, you know, neurological or psychiatric and slash behavioral outcomes. Um, some people believe that, you know, um, gluten may have actually have a direct effect in the brain if uh, we'll be able to um, uh, even partially digested, make through this leaky gut and go to the bloodstream and reach the brain through the blood brain barrier. Some people believe that this fragment of gluten um, that are called gliodorphin can bind to a specific receptor in the brain and change the behavior of people and the outcome depends who you are. Uh, other people, including myself, believe that this is not going to be a direct in involvement of gluten in the brain, actually uh, rather is something that is mediated by an inflammatory process. So in other words, the steps that accounts and are responsible for, you know, uh, the other form of gluten-related disorders like, you know, uh, CD disease with allergy and, uh, and uh, you know, gluten sensitivity applies also in this form. So you eat gluten. Gluten is only partially digested because we don't have enzymes to completely dismantle gluten as a species. Some of these fragments will come through because zonulin is released because some of these fragments, that's what they do for a living. They release zonulin and therefore they get into our body where the immune system sees the enemy coming and will mount an immune response that translates into inflammation. Now, in the same book that you mentioned, Gluten Freedom, I also mentioned that the gut is not like Las Vegas. What happened in the gut does not stay in the gut. <laughs> so, um, bottom line, you know, the gut is a tremendously complex body field yeah. in which you negotiate all the time, uh, you know, uh, between enemies uh, uh, that come in and our soldiers, our immune cells, they're trying to really stop this invasion. And when you fight and, and use weaponry, there is, you know, a collateral damage that we call inflammation. When this is under control, you don't even feel that there is an ongoing fight and therefore you stay healthy. But sometimes this, you know, inflammation that really goes out of control and this translating symptoms. Now, when these immune cells, they all stay on the battlefield, you will have prevalently or just exclusively, you know, GI symptoms. But sometimes, for reasons that we don't know, but we know for sure that happen, these immune cells, they leave the body fields, they go somewhere else. Um, typical example, people with see the disease, they have skin problems like dermatitis and pretiformis. They have that because these immune cells, they leave the gut, they go somewhere else. And many of the systemic symptoms, they are related to see the disease, like joint pain, uh, you know, uh, muscle aches, uh, you know, uh, and even other issues like reproductive issues like abortion and uh, infertility, it seems to be related to the fact that these immune cells, they spread everywhere in the body. So the brain seems not to be an exception to uh, this, you know, um, eventual involvement, a distance of the gut. And this brings once again, Stephanie, what you were mentioning that, you know, we artificially divide our body in different organ systems, but everything is so tidily harmonized and, co and, and connected and interconnected. So 
a healthy gut may keep healthy the rest of the body, and if something goes wrong in the gut, you can have spills everywhere else, including the brain. Yeah, amazing. <coughs> so do you think then that the testing should play a role in these conditions, even with the um, psoriasis and perhaps rheumatoid arthritis that you mentioned? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, some of them, uh, we know there is a strong comorbidity, so I, I believe it's almost a must that you have to do the testing. For example, we know there is a strong correlation between celiac disease and type 1 diabetes. And matter of fact, now we routinely, no matter if you have GI symptoms or not, we screen people for type 1 with type 1 diabetes for celiac disease. The same applies for people with, um, um, I don't know, um, Hashimoto thyroiditis, autoimmune uh, thyroid disease. There's such a strong comorbidity that, you know, we screen routinely everybody with that condition for celiac disease. Now, there are other conditions like psoriasis, again, and other, you know, uh, chronic inflammatory diseases in which people, they start to think that there is a um, possible connection with a gluten exposure. The problem that we face and the major challenge that we face, actually, is that to generalize this concept to the entire population of people with that kind of problem. For example, you know, saying that everybody is psoriasis or with uh, Hashimoto, diabetes, or, you know, um, autism or schizophrenia will benefit to gluten-free diets will only fuel the skepticism of the people that don't believe in this connection. Because if they say, okay, where is the evidence? Show me, do me a, a study. Uh, show me with a study and, you know, uh, unfortunately, and that's not unusual in biology, 100% does not exist. Mm. Uh, what exists is that, again, these conditions are final destinations. How you got there can be very different from one individual to another. And the challenge here is the stratify the patient population and say, how many of these people with psoriasis or autism or schizophrenia or diabetes reach, reach that final destination to the gluten connection. And, you know, if you are able to do that, now you have a target population which the, the implementation of gluten-free diet may have a positive impact. Um, if you don't do that, and the concept, in other words, that I'm trying to really share is what we call personalized medicine or precision medicine. If you don't do that, you incur the risk of what the skeptical individual have been trumpeted as a proof that this gluten connection does not exist. In other words, you take a court of people with a certain disease, uh, you put uh, this court of people all on a gluten-free diet, and let's say that only 20% will benefit, 80%, I, the vast majority will not respond to the diet, and they conclude the gluten-free diet has nothing to do with this particular condition. Yeah. But if you take the same court and say, okay, you know, I have biomarkers, so tell me who took the gluten route to reach the final destination. Then let's say the gluten route is, uh, you know, 20% um, uh, of these people, and you put only these 20% people on a gluten-free diet. Now you have 100% efficacy. See how this, the outcome changed completely if you don't dilute the denominator by really targeting the population that may benefit the most to go gluten-free. Yeah, fantastic. I think it's just important to recognize that there are other areas to be explored with these conditions rather than just a pharmaceutical route or, I guess, not recognizing the potential role that nutrition would play. But you make a fantastic point. I think certainly we don't want to fuel the skepticism. 
Well, Stephanie, just to follow up on the, uh, you know, drug development and drug industry, there is also the misconception of the fact that drugs are infallible. That's not true. Hmm. I mean, you know, again, uh, or even the, the most efficacious drugs, they have an efficacy that, you know, bring them to be brought to the market that is not even close to perfection. Hmm. I mean, you know, the best drug that we have in the market, they have an efficacy of 40, 45%. That means that you know, two-thirds of individuals that take that drug would not benefit from that drug at all. And they will pay only the price of the side effects. So if you look at that aspect of the story, even drugs are not efficacious 100% of people. Yeah. So, um, you know, and again, um, I believe that personalized and precision medicine in terms of patient certification and, and specific intervention need to look at if and when to give the drug to whom as well as who should we really target for a more natural intervention to obtain something that would have a, an efficacy that would be comparable to a drug, but devoid of any kind of side effect, because let's say a dietary intervention does not have such a thing. And, and again, this is extremely important and becomes even important, even more important, if you don't talk about patient certification, therefore precision medicine, but you talk about preventive medicine. Because again, if we look at the epidemiology of these chronic conditions, and we agree that we were discussing before, that we're changing our lifestyle and specifically the way that we eat um, as a response for these epidemics, then really that, that kind of, you know, hypothesis implies that if we go back and eat a little bit more natural, the way that we evolved, without going back into the cave, of course, <laughs> we may be able actually to not deal with this problem so to prevent from this problem to even to to occur and therefore start to slow down if not arrest this uh, explosion of these conditions yeah absolutely and i think that's going to be the the goal for for most people um and certainly to avoid the billion dollar industry that is you know the gluten-free foods which aren't necessarily going to be healthier um and I think believe uh, I believe sorry fuel that skepticism because people suddenly look at all these gluten free products and they realise how you know artificial and processed they are. When if we stick to natural whole foods, we're avoiding you know most of the problem in the first place. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And again, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, first of all, a, a balance in life for everything, including diet, is the way to go. And a, a diet off balance is always going to be a problem. And if when you are diagnosed with a condition that implies that you have to go gluten-free, you start to abuse on these gluten-free products, they are, you know, not definitely healthy because, again, to be pal palatable, they have to be enriched in fat and sugar and are hypercaloric, then you pay the price. Mm. Uh, if you will be able, on the other hand, to be moderate in their consumption, or even better, to avoid the consumption at all and stay only natural gluten-free, then you will be much better off. Yeah, amazing. I could talk to you about this all day, but I'm conscious of your commitments in the lead-up to the symposium. Um, so I will direct all of our listeners to your book, Gluten Freedom. Um, it's an amazing research, um, uh, sorry, resource with lots of research and certainly practical ideas on... Um, 
how to live a gluten-free life. So we'll pop some links into the show notes in regards to that. And where can our listeners find you online? Is it social media or a website I could direct them to? Sure. We have a website. We have an active, very active uh, Twitter and Facebook, uh, you know, um, you know, network with more than 12,000 people on it. And, um, you know, again, um, um, you know, our website is www.cdxcenter.org. And the uh, Facebook uh, account, uh, the Twitter is uh, hashtag CDIC Research. Great. I will definitely link those up. So I'll direct our listeners there to find out more. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm hoping to get to Sydney in April to hear you speak at the Bioceuticals Research Symposium. Um, But in the meantime, I'll be finishing off reading Gluten Freedom. Um, So thanks again. And I hope that we can get you back on the show in the future. And um, I look forward to seeing all your research coming through um, in years to come. Thank you very much, Stephanie, to have uh, me on your show and for the nice words of appreciation. (laughs) Absolutely. I've been following your work for a long time. So I'm like a kid at Christmas today. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again. And I'll speak to you really soon. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.